Hi, I'm Kate Gilman. At the end of September, the TDA announced it was suspending some textured breast implants due to their link with a rare lymphoma. At this stage, the suspension will be for six months, starting on the 25th of October. In this podcast, we discuss some of the medico-legal issues. Avanti is really happy to be here today to facilitate this discussion on such an important topic, bringing together Dr Catherine Bora from the Australian Society of Plastic Surgeons and Associate Professor Sanjay Warrior from Breast Surge ANZ and Michael Lynch, who's the head of our underwriting team at Avant. My name's Kate Gilman, I'm the head of the Medico-Legal Advisory Service and I'll be hosting our discussion tonight. I thought we'd get started, Catherine Sanjay, if we could get you just to tell us a little bit about yourselves and your backgrounds. Yeah, I'm Catherine Bora. I'm a plastic surgeon based in Sydney. I've been practising here in Sydney for 15 years and tonight I'm um, representing Australian Society of Plastic Surgeons in this discussion. Thanks, Catherine. And Sanjay? Yeah, so I'm Sanjay Warrior. I'm a breast surgeon based in Sydney as well. I've been practising for over five years now. I'm the current president of Breast Surge ANZ which is the peak body for breast cancer surgeons in Australia and New Zealand. Okay, thanks. And Michael, you lead our underwriting team at Avant. I just thought it might be helpful to put this discussion into context. Why is it Avant has been interested in this topic, why you've been monitoring this topic? Thanks, Kate. Well, at Avant, we want to provide our members with a broad level of cover that gives them confidence that they can practice for their past and current patients with confidence that they know they've got the protection that they need, especially when issues like BIA, ALCL come up that are emerging risks that we haven't seen before. And we look at that and we try and manage the premium that we're charging to our our members so that it's equitable and, and sustainable. I think there's an alignment in terms of we all want quality healthcare. We understand that the relationship of trust between the surgeon and the patient is really the basis that we all want and we want to support and give the advice to our members around that. I think breast implant associated anaplastic large cell lymphoma is quite a mouthful, as is BIA LCL. So I'm just hoping, are you okay if we stick tonight to ALCL? Um, I think that's a good idea. idea. Because there's a lot to get at. I agree. So Listeners of this um, podcast may already have some basic knowledge around ALCL. So I thought what might be helpful to get started is perhaps, Sanjay, if you could just bring us up to date with what the current state of knowledge is on the connection between breast implants and ALCL. Yes, yeah, so ALCL or anaplastic large cell lymphoma is a rare condition. It occurs, one of the factors is related to the actual type of implant and not so much the inside of the implant, but the outside, which is the covering of the implant. And ultimately, this surface area of the implant is thought to potentially impact the risk of ALCL. We subdivide the implants based from grade one to grade four, depending on the degree of texturing. Grade one is a smooth implant. Grade two is what we consider a micro-textured implant. Grade three is a macro-textured implant and grade four is above that. So essentially, depending on the grade of implant, there has been a difference relating to the type of rate associated with this particular condition. Other factors that influence the development of this condition include the sterility associated with the insertion of the device and the thought of an associated infection 
and other factors include the genetics of a patient where we're not seeing these rates in countries like South America. Okay. So there, there is an immune response, there is a bacterial association and biofilm which leads to the development of a rare type of localised, often lymphoproliferative stroke lymphoma and that's basically our thoughts relating to this condition. Okay, thanks, Sandy. And Catherine, Sandy mentioned that this is a rare condition. Can you just help us with understanding what those incident rates are in Australia at the moment and how, sure. how Australia compares with the rest yeah, of the world? Yeah, well, in Australia we're lucky in that we have been able to get data on the, the number of women who have implants and the type of implants so that at least we have some preliminary data. It seems that with grade three and grade four, type implants, the risk for a woman might be somewhere between one in 2,500 and one in, say, 4,000. With the grade one implants, there has never in the world been a case of ALCL. And then with the grade two microtextured implant, currently it's thought to be about one in 86,000 women may get ALCL. We expect to have a lot more information come out over the next three to five years. So it's an area that we need to collect data do research and, as surgeons, be aware of the most up-to-date information because even in the course of 12 to 18 months, that information has changed. And my understanding is, as a condition, it was only really classified by the World Health Organisation, was it, in 2016? Yes, the original relationship between breast implants and a large cell lymphoma was first recognised only in 2011 and then it was recognised by the World Health Organisation as a distinct entity in 2016. Sanjay, in April this year, the TGA convened an expert working group to assist them, as I understand it, in doing their risk assessment over certain products in, in Australia. And I understand that you're, you've been a member of that group. Yeah, that's correct. The essential recommendations are a suspension on grade three and grade four implants with the other implants that um, having similar sort of associated recommendations with them, which includes the companies relabeling so that the implants and the, the risks associated with the implant and risk of ALCL is properly informed to the patient and that there's appropriate informing of the TGA of what's happening with those implants relating to complications and also events. Because I guess with surgeons, you're reliant, I'm assuming, to a large extent on information from the manufacturers and from the TGA about the safety of these devices. Yeah, definitely. I think as surgeons, we don't rely just on what a device company may tell us. We always are looking for independent studies for long-term outcome data. So, you know, it's in everyone's interest to have that data and for the implant companies to be transparent about what's actually going on. That, I think, has been a really helpful summary or overview of where we're at, I think, in terms of our understanding of ALCL and, and where we sit in the regulatory framework. So I guess six months down the track from then, it'll be interesting to revisit to see what the final decision is made. What I thought might be helpful now is to shift our focus a bit and to look at this issue from the perspective of the patient. Following some of the reports in the media, it's likely to have caused some alarm or stress amongst women who've either have implants at the moment or who are thinking of having surgery. So I thought perhaps we could focus on four 
categories. The first is patients with implants who come and see you who are concerned about their implants and what advice you give them. Patients who come and see you and who are symptomatic. Patients who are about to have surgery or inquiring about surgery. What information do you now give them? And then the patients who've had surgery, um, how do you inform them and what steps do you take to make them aware of the symptoms? So perhaps it'd be good to start with the first category and I'm imagining these are patients who've either heard things on the radio or read media reports and who are coming to see you concerned because for a lot of women they just hear breast implant and they don't necessarily know the difference between grade one to four or smooth or textured. So perhaps Catherine and I could just start with you. What are the recommendations and, and what sure. are you telling them? And yep. So it is recommended that on an individual surgeon level that our staff and ourselves are informed and have information at the ready to field phone calls, for example, and have accurate information, that the patients should be encouraged by their general practitioners or, or their surgeons to go back to their implanting surgeon to make sure that they get the correct information about what type of implant they have. And then um, they can have a consultation with that implanting surgeon to really just make sure that there are no symptoms. And then it's really up to the individual surgeon and the patient where they want to take it from there. I think it's still important to emphasise to patients that this is a low-risk cancer. To put it in perspective, the risk of breast cancer, regular breast cancer, is one in eight women. And we're talking about the highest risk for ALCL being one in 2,500. So a lot of cancers, I, this is what I tell my patients, a lot of cancers like bowel cancer, melanoma, breast cancer, are much more likely to happen than this. So there's no need to be getting panicked and anxious about it. But, you know, every patient will react differently and some may require extra information or investigation. And I, my understanding is there's no recommendation to remove implants if women are not symptomatic. Yeah, that's um, been a consistent message in every country yeah. in the world and yeah. there's no recommendation to remove implants but those patients with the high-risk implants do need to be under some type of surveillance program. Okay. And the other thing is it's not recommended that you do routine you know, monitoring or preventative screening as a rule? It's not recommended at this stage that women have regular ultrasounds, that the recommendation is for at least a yearly clinical follow-up with their implanting surgeon. Yep. And then at some stage, their surgeons usually get ultrasounds as the implant is ageing because there is a degree of asymptomatic rupture and complications that can develop without the woman having any symptoms. So, for example, in my practice, I'm going to probably start ultrasounding patients if the patient wishes around the fifth year. And I know we talked before about the incident rates, but one of the things I thought was also helpful just to put into context is when the median point at which... ALCL becomes apparent? And I've seen, read different figures, but perhaps you could help us with that. Is yeah, so the median incidence is around seven years, but the range can be significant. From I think the earliest noted by the TGA was within a very immunogenic patient was a year, but it generally between three and 13, there's been out to a long way past that as well. And I guess, Sunday that leads us to the second category of the woman who turns up to see you and then you recognise that she is symptomatic? Yes, yeah, so with regards to, depending on the symptom, we would assess both their breasts and their implant if they're symptomatic. From a breast perspective, we're generally looking at a mammogram and an ultrasound. It's not uncommon to have a small rim of fluid around an implant. Sometimes we would follow that up 
and see if there's interval change. Anything bigger than that, we would generally aspirate and send off for testing. So that's what I understand is one yeah. of the key symptoms, fluid collection. Yeah. I think most of the patients who've presented with ALCL have actually presented with asymmetry and swelling of a breast. So yeah. it's, I think it's important to note that most patients presenting with a delayed seroma don't have ALCL. I understand. And it's, a, it's an important message, I think, yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. But would still need treatment. Oh, but, and but absolutely. ALCL needs to be excluded, and but it's not the only cause for a late-onset seroma or swelling. For patients who are coming to see you who are either about to have surgery, perhaps for reconstructive purposes, you know, as part of their breast cancer treatment or for cosmetic purposes, I guess I'd just be interested to know how the information that you've become aware of in the last 12, 18 months, how is that impacting on how you make a, a decision about the type of implant to use, but also the consent process? It certainly has drastically lengthened the consultation process. For proper informed consent, it's not only talking about ALCL, it's about capsular contracture and very importantly, it's about the fact that the patient is most likely to need revisional surgery at least once, if not twice more, depending on their age and implantation. It's really important to cover all those factors. More often than not, a cosmetic patient will present quite excited and happy about breast implants and what they're thinking about is what size should I be, you know, should I go teardrop, should I go round, but actually what they actually need to realise is they have to factor in that they may need two or three further operations in their life. They will be potentially exposing themselves to risk in terms of the lymphoma, which is extremely rare, but they also are exposing themselves to, to other complications associated with breast implants. So it takes a long time to get through all of that information and sometimes the patient focus is really on the aesthetic outcome. There's a bit of, well, that's not likely to happen to me. So I think it's really important to take all those steps of talking to them about all those things, which is not the glamorous side of breast implant surgery, yeah. giving them written information to take home, having someone else, especially if they're a young patient, having a parent or a carer at the consultation, and then making sure that you see them again prior to surgery so that they do understand the implications of having a breast implant. I like the fact that you said giving them an information sheet or something to take yes. home. And I'm, I know from our perspective, from a sort of medico-legal perspective, that was uh, something that we would really encourage surgeons to do just because of the, the feedback we often get from patients that they, they may only retain 50% of what they're told. I think it's really helpful if you can also document that you've given yeah. an information yeah. sheet. Yeah. And the TGA has great consumer information sheets so you, you can just download that and give it to the patient or give them the, the link, link as well. Yeah. I agree. I think the um, TDA information is really helpful, both from, for doctors and consumers. Before I moved on, I just wanted to cover off the prognosis once you've removed the implant. Yeah, that's an important point. So we, we've been talking about incidents, but when it comes to this condition, it is a, it's probably a spectrum of outcomes and generally the outcome is incredibly good for these patients. 90% will be cured by having their capsule removed and won't need any other treatments. Yeah. There's a small proportion that would then proceed to other treatments such as chemotherapy and that would be presented generally at a multidisciplinary meeting prior to having those decisions made. And there's been incredibly rarely, with delayed presentations, there's been patients that have passed away in Australia. I believe there's four cases that have passed away. But majority of patients, it's a condition that's curable by removing the implant and then adapting their breast appropriately at that stage. 
And I guess that final fourth category is patients who may have had surgery and what symptoms they should be looking out for. Catherine, perhaps you could tell us what ASPS yeah. is doing in this regard. So patients are encouraged to become very familiar with their breasts, both from a breast cancer point of view, but also from an implant point of view. They have to know what's normal for them so that at the first sign of any change, they can seek advice. So, yeah, I think it's just making sure that the patients really do pick up early any changes in, the, in their breast or implants. And is ASPS putting information on their website? Yeah, ASPS has a lot of information on their website and same as the Australian Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgeons. So I think there's plenty of good information out there that is giving accurate advice, you know, compared to, say, what women may be seeing in the media. And I think the important thing moving forward, it's a really recent announcement, is conveying a consistent message across societies and picking peak bodies who can get it out to not just patients but also surgeons so that we're giving a consistent message. And GPs, I guess, would and be in... Absolutely. Being so if we're looking at the groups, you've got the consumers and the patients, you'd have the GPs in the middle and then the surgeons. Yeah. And also, like, there's, there's you know, been a quite a steep learning curve for pathologists and radiologists as yes. well to get up to speed with what's going on because yeah. they're all very much part of the diagnostic process. And I guess, Michael, given your interest in this and monitoring this, are we seeing any claims come through on... This issue, or what are you well, seeing in them? At this stage, Kate, we're not seeing any claims. Claims are always a, a lag indicator. So it's really a product liability issue, similar to the PIP implants back in 2010 12. The manufacturers and the sponsors are the ones that will really respond to most of these claims. And I think where we're looking now is to the future, and um, where there'll be a heightened focus on the informed consent. I know, given that. You're representing the, the legal and the medical legal advisory service. I'd probably ask you, what are we seeing? <laughs> what are, what are <laughs> we, we get, getting in? What am I in for in a few years' time when the claims start coming in? We are very interested to hear. <laughs> yeah. Catherine, you've already made the point that I think what this has done is changed the informed consent process. The TDA has stated that the risk of ALCL, it should be included as part of the informed consent process. In terms of what we're seeing, what we do sometimes is look at what's happening in the rest of the world. Sometimes Australia leads the way and other times we respond. There are some class actions that have started in the US, one recently in Korea, which is interesting, and another one in Canada, I think. But again, as Michael mentioned, these are against the manufacturers, not against doctors. But I am aware of at least one law firm that is inviting patients to contact them if they either have ALCL or they're concerned about ALCL. It's yes. an interesting dichotomy where you're wanting to inform patients and empower them, but on the flip side, you're also potentially increasing anxiety. Listening like, to Catherine, and I know the, the National Cosmetic Guidelines require a seven-day cooling-off period, yeah. but I think what I'm encouragingly hearing is that that's really it's seven days, but what does that mean? It doesn't give any indication of the quality of the consent process, but I think consent process should be an, a number of consultations and it should be not marketing this procedure as a, you know, come in and walk out seven days later and get the procedure. It really is, to pick up on what you were saying, Catherine, it's a life-altering procedure and it's making sure that the patient is aware of that and going in with their eyes open. And again, it's going back to that relationship of trust that I think you want to start off on with your patients and that's what we observe where claims and complaints arise, the common element is that lack of information and that lack of partnership 
between the patient and the surgeon. Yeah, I would just probably second what both yourself and Catherine have said in the reconstructive setting. When we speak to our patients, it's making it clear at the beginning this is a lifelong relationship. It's creating that bond early and so that they're informed and aware that things can change and I suspect that helps when they're having to adapt their surgery, etc. Do you think that this is going to change the options you give for women post-reconstruction? Yeah, I think it's making sure that they're aware of the risks associated with implant reconstruction and the only way to do that is to make sure that they're aware of all the types of reconstruction and then they've had time to think about it. The reconstructive consultation is so much more complicated than the cosmetic Cosmetic. consultation because not only is the patient trying to get their head around all of the reconstructive options, which are numerous, they also are grappling with the diagnosis and the implications for themselves and their family. Yeah. And this is just adding another layer of information that you have to provide them with without overwhelming I suspect we will see a trend towards more autologous recon. I have found that the, the women who've had breast cancer despite me telling them the risk of a certain implant that I would recommend is one in 80,000, they say, I've had one cancer, I'm not going to submit myself to another one, and they choose an autologous. And it's been a common thing. Yeah. yeah. And Michael, from an insurer's perspective, what's happened or changed, I guess, in that space? Well, we've consulted with uh, the profession and with regard to fat transfer for FRAX qualified surgeons, we've approved the, the use of that I think we've seen it used mainly assisting breast augmentation, but we can see it being used separately as well. One of the things I was just going to add in from a medical legal perspective is maintaining your medical records. As a general rule around the country, the legal requirement to keep your records is for seven years from the date of your last consultation for adults. Given we're talking about a median time, say, seven to ten years, This may be something that prompts you to think about whether you keep your records for longer than Mm. that. Catherine, I guess you mentioned before about keeping records of the identifiers Mm. of of the implant is looking at other ways to make Mm. sure that that information is retained. I think these days more practices are going towards computerised patient records as well, so it does make the process of keeping patient records a lot easier. Easier. The patient could potentially have it on their My Health. I was just going to finish by asking, do you have any other questions of each other? That Have we covered off everything or is there anything you think that we really haven't touched on that you think would be important? I guess the question that members may be thinking about is if there have been high-volume surgeons with implants that are now recalled, what is their potential risk, particularly the grade 3 and grade, grade four, 4 implants, now that they've been suspended? Yeah. I guess that comes back, doesn't it, to the point we were just saying is for that class or group of patients, if you're able to identify them, what steps, if any, you should be taking to notify patients. I think the key thing would be to make sure that women understand what symptoms to look out for and whether that's putting information on their website so that if patients are concerned, they can at least check that website and the next step is making a, a decision about whether you should be contacting those patients to give them information around the link to the TTA website so that they're aware of what to look out for. Is that something that your organisations are looking into at the moment? We've been recommending that they provide information to their patients and one of the recommendations to our membership has been to ensure that there is an appropriate informed educated consent which includes documentation. And similarly, 
it's up to each individual surgeon as to how they would like to approach that issue. Hopefully, most surgeons have got a system of recalling those patients that have got those particular implants. And I guess what we would be suggesting is if you're not sure, you should be getting some advice from your MDO or yeah. from your college or the Plastic mm. Surgeon Society. Thank you. That's been a really fascinating discussion. I'm sure we could keep going for ages, but I thought we might just finish by asking for your final key messages. What are the really important things that you think we need to leave people with on this topic? Michael? I'm happy to start. I think for me it's this informed consent, and my observation would be that the informed consent is a, a high threshold now, but I can see it getting higher. And as this develops in, in five or ten years' time, so I think for surgeons, they set that informed consent bar really, really high so that they've got the confidence that as things develop, they can say, well, I've done all I can now to inform my patients. So I do think it's the quality of that ongoing conversation that where the focus needs to be. I think that's what the surgeon can control. And Catherine? I think from a surgeon's perspective, we all have to make sure we stay informed of what's going on um, with ALCL and the different breast implants because um, we have to be able to have the most up-to-date information for our patient's sake. Yeah, that's good advice. And Sanjay? Yeah, so I think both the other two have mentioned from a personal perspective for putting on the hat as running Breast Surge ANZ. Yeah. I think given the decisions that have been made, I think it's important that we get leadership from craft groups to ensure that there's consistency and in information provided to our members so that they're able to provide that to their patients. And governance as well, I think it's important. It's an opportunity to reflect and think about, is there anything we can do better? They're great points and I think I would just add that informed consent's not a form, it's not a checklist. It is a process and in Australia the law requires you to take into account what are material risks to the individual patient and to take the time to make sure you understand what it is that's concerning the patient and you're addressing those individual concerns. And I guess we couldn't finish a podcast from about without talking about documentation mm -hmm. <laughs> um, because it is obviously so critical. So I think we'll just end it on there. I guess we may need to regroup in six months or so just to find out where we've landed with the TTA. But thank you very much. It's been a really interesting discussion. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you have any questions, we suggest you contact your college or society. For AVAMP members, you can also contact our Medico Legal Advisory Service for advice. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.